Father God, I just praise you and thank you, and what a privilege it is to be here. I'm really excited about this lesson. I've had so much fun going through, through Judges. It's just been um, exciting to uncover this period of history, as dark as it is, but to, to see your hand at work in it and to take comfort in the fact of knowing that no matter how bad things get, you are still on the throne, you are still behind the curtain, and you still have your hand on events in history, and that you do preserve your people. You've preserved the nation of Israel and remained faithful to your covenant promises to them. And I, I have every confidence, Father, you will preserve your church and you will preserve us. And there is such peace and comfort in, in resting in that truth. And I just pray that everybody in here and those that are not here, if, if they're not experiencing that, the Father, those truths would just become so real to them and that they could just rest in the fact of your sovereignty. Father, as always, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would just be poured out this morning and that all of us would grow, we would learn that your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, would not only reprove and convict us, but it would just encourage us and, and help us to grow in our relationship with you, and to become more Christ-like. Father, we commit our time to you now, in your son's name, amen. Okay, last week, let's just review a, a little bit. We looked at Gideon, right? What, did you, what are some things you learned about Gideon? Who was Gideon? Anybody? Bueller? Huh? Who was he? He was a, no, he wasn't a Midianite. He fought the Midianites, and, and where, when he first shows up in the storyline, where is he? He's threshing wheat in the wine press. Why is he threshing wheat in a wine press? That is not where you thresh wheat. He's afraid, and he's hiding. And why is he hiding? Yeah, because the Midianites would just come in, you know, they were a little more nomadic. They would just kind of wait on the sidelines, and as soon as they'd seen that the Israelites had their crops up and running, they just swooped in, remember those figures of speech, like locusts, and just wiped the land clean, took everything from them. And they did this for seven long years. They were a mighty army, and as a result, Israel is doing very unnatural things. They are hiding out in caves. They are um, threshing wheat underground in a wine press because of this oppression that the Midianites are bringing on them. And what we see from Israel is here is God's chosen people who have been promised this land, a land where they're to possess it and live victoriously in it, and they're living in caves underground, fearful, unable to fight back. And, of course, God comes to Gideon, raises him up. He is the one that goes forth with only 300 men against the 135,000 Midianites. And he is victorious against them and sets the people free and ushers in a time of peace. We also saw with Gideon his lack of faith, how weak in faith he was. That first sign, you remember the first sign that he did? He does, he's not even sure who God is. You know, show me a sign that I know that it's you who speak. Because they're so enmeshed in worshiping the Baals and the Asherah, 
He's grown up in that environment. His father is the one that built the altar that God later said, tear it down. And then he asked for more signs because you see, he's just, he's a little, he's scared. I, personally, I'd be scared if I had 300 men against 135,000. But then God, in his graciousness, gives Gideon a sign. He says, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down and listen. So you see this interchange between them, and you see the victory that really is all of the Lord, as we've seen in every single one of these, right? The victory is the Lord's. But how does Gideon end? You went back this week, and you looked at those closing verses in, in chapter 8. How does Gideon's life, how does he, how does he end? They He, melt, he takes all the spoils, he melts it down, he makes an ephod, doesn't he? The people ask him to be king. How does he respond to that? Nope, nope, nope. The Lord is king. Do his words match his actions? How do you see them being incongruent? He, what, he did what, Debbie? Well, his whole lifestyle, what does he have? All these wives, all these sons. You know, he takes the, the spoils from the people. That's something a king would do. He, he has this son by a concubine, who we're going to look at this week, Abimelech. And what, what does his name mean? My father is king, and that's what he names his son. So I think, and, and you see when he dies, which we've seen this repeated pattern, didn't we? The judge dies, and immediately the people do evil in the sight of the Lord and go back to worshiping the Baals and the Asherah. So he started out very, very weak in faith. We see him have this incredibly strong period in his life where the Lord comes upon him mightily and he is able to be used as God's instrument to deliver the people, but he does not end well at all. And his ending and his actions and what he does has sowed the seeds and it has toiled the ground to make it fertile for what happens next. Do you all see that? So we have next Abimelech. And who is he? He is the son of Gideon, or Jerobel. This is what they are now calling him, right? What else about him? He's up in Shechem. Who are the main characters? Let's just put them, you know, we do this every week. We put up who the main characters are. Um, would somebody want to run down to the office real quick and see if there's something besides red that is better than this? Thank you. Appreciate it. Black, blue, anything. But I, I want to use this red, so for some now. Okay. So who are the characters? We've got Abimelech. He's our main, our main person that we're going to talk about. Okay. Basically, his mother and her relatives. Okay. Who else? Jotham. Who's Jotham? He's the youngest brother of all of the sons. 
of Gideon. Okay, who else? Okay, we have the leaders of Shechem. Sorry, you guys, that you can't see this very well. But. Okay, there's more. Do what? Who? Z-E-B-U-L. Who is he? Zebul. He was kind of like the, the mayor, the ruler of the city. He was loyal to, to Abimelech. Okay? Who else? Gaul. And what do we know about Gaul? He, he led a rebellion against Abimelech, didn't he? So, thank you, Scott. See if I can make this a little more seeable. Oh, yes, there we go. Let there be black and light. Okay, are we missing anybody else? Oh, yes, we are. Who else are we missing? Uh-huh, the 70 sons. And I'd say there's one more unnamed. The, the, the certain woman, right? Yes, a certain woman who's going to drop a millstone on his head and crush him. So here's all of our players in this story. Who's kind of missing? Okay, is God mentioned at all? A couple times? But it's just, it's God. But who, who, God, but what aspect of God is totally Yes, Yahweh, Lord, is not ever mentioned. And God is only mentioned a couple of times. That is significant to notice, isn't it? It's very significant. Let's go over just kind of the main events. I don't want to get caught, I don't want to get caught up in all the details of the events, but we've got our characters up there. Let's kind of go through the events, the main things that happen throughout this account with Abimelech, and then we'll step back and interpret them and bring more depth and texture to them. Does that sound okay? So Abimelech goes to Shechem, to his mother, and to his mother's relatives, and what does he propose to them and why? What does he do? He wants to be king, doesn't he? And how does he, how does he argue that for his, his right to be king? I'm the relative. Do you want these 70 guys trying to rule you? They're not even really related to you. And if you don't make, you'll, I'm reading between the lines here, but it's there. If you don't make me king, one of them's going to be king. And do they agree to this? The leaders of Shechem do agree, and as a result of their complicit, complicity with each other in saying, yes, Abimelech, we're going to let you be king, what, what do they do? They give him money. Where'd they get the money? From the temple of Baal Barith, which is interesting, okay? And they take the money, they give it to him, they establish as a king, but what's part of the success of him being king? Who do they have to get rid of first? 
Yeah, so he kills all of them. Did you notice that on one stone? Kills all of the brothers, except one gets away, doesn't he? Jotham gets away. And he rises up into the forefront in this narrative for a brief period of time. And what does he do? Is it a prophecy? It's more of a parable or fable. And he gives them this parable, this favor, fable, which we'll come back to and interpret what it means. And then he disappears off the scene, doesn't he? How do events then play out? What happens? There's a significant phrase. Look at it. Look in your scripture in 22. In 9.22. No, 9.22. Just, just a statement about Abimelech. Okay, three years. So here... Here's this individual who has essentially made himself king through his bargaining and his appeal to his people. Was God in this? No. No. This is, is he a judge? He is not a judge. This is not the repeated pattern of what we've seen up to this point where God raises up a judge or he goes to someone like Gideon and says, you will be the next deliverer, the next judge. Remember, judges are often, they're more of a deliverer than they are someone who sits and rules and decides cases. But he is not raised up by the Lord at all. In fact, the Lord's not even mentioned in that account. This is all what he is doing himself to jockey for position and have rule. Do you see how the seeds of what Gideon did just prepared the soil for this? He think you know, Gideon said, God be king, but then he lived as if he was king. And he set up the example for his son to want to desire that as well. And his son does go do that. And in the course of that, commits great treachery in killing all of these innocent brothers who have done nothing. Okay, so he rules for three years. We don't really know anything about his rule. We can, over get, we can only guess. But God intervenes. We finally see God. What does he do? And what begins to happen? He sent an evil spirit. And as a result of this evil spirit, what happens between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem? They what? Yeah, they, they become at odds against each other, don't they? I mean, they're, they're setting ambushes on each other. They are attacking each other. They don't trust each other. Isn't it right about then that um, Gaul shows up, this, this interesting, this person that comes in, and he plants the seeds by saying, well, why should he be the one? I mean, he's not even from Shechem. Yeah, he may be related to these people, but I'm a local. You need, you need to make me. I mean, it's really kind of funny almost, like kids on the playground. But he, he, he rises up, and they both set ambushes against each other. But what, and what eventually happens? He fights against Abimelech. Is he successful? Somebody yell it out. Is he successful? Gaul. No. Abimelech is able to drive him out. And then what does Abimelech do? 
goes to other town. Yeah. But what does he do in the process? Doesn't he kill some people? What, what, Tony? Yeah. Well, look what he does first. Look what he does first in around 41, 42, after he drives out Gaul and his relatives so that they couldn't dwell and check him. Then he, he kills the people when they come out to the field. So he basically takes revenge. So they come out, and he ambushes them and, and kills them. And yes, it looks like some of them flee and they go to the tower. And what's he do at the tower? It's a brutal scene. Yeah, has all his men get, you know, um, dry bush on their shoulders, go up there, puts it down, basically burn the people to death is, is, what, is what he did. You know, when, when Drew Moss says it's the blood and guts club <laughs> in Judges, it is the blood and guts club. It's very R-rated. It is very graphic if you sit there and think about this, this scene and what they're doing to these people. But in the process, certain woman drops the millstone on him, crushes his head. He does not want to be known as dying at the hand of a woman, so he asks someone to drive a spear through him. So, But essentially, the woman killed him, and it's recorded for all history, isn't it? <laughs> Go, ladies. She killed him. Okay, now let's go back and kind of, kind of look, uh, unpack all this a little bit more and look at some of the questions that you did. How do you see, how do you see Israel's um, covenant unfaithfulness and the brokenness that is going on? Do you remember when we did Deborah and Barak? I loved, you know, Jim made a comment when we were talking about Deborah being a woman judge and how unusual that would have been in that particular time and culture. And people can debate the significance of that. But I loved what he said. He put up there on the board, and he said, I really think it's more evidence of a broken culture. Do you all remember that? No, you don't? Well, he did. Trust me. I remember. <laughs> so you have Israel's unfaithfulness and essentially I mean you could say that unfaithfulness leads to the broken culture or you know which came first chicken or the egg the culture is broken they are unfaithful what signs what things in this a narrative account point you to the truth of this reality Hey, that, that's, that's a really interesting point. When we look at the characters, what, you know, we kind of saw how, how God, is, God is missing. There's no enemy. Because what have we, you know, it's exactly what Courtney said. Up until this point, the pattern has been they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot God. They abandoned him. They worshiped the, the idols. And then God sent an enemy to oppress them. You see how the, 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 that cycle's missing this time. So the, the cycle is, is not there other than 
Yes, they did evil in the sight of the Lord in chapter 8 and served the Baals and forgot him. But the cycle of God sending an oppressor is not there. This time, I love what she said, the oppressor is from within. Do you see that? So if I want to look for signs, the oppression is not external. It's internal. They are bringing all this on within themselves as a result of their sin and their covenant unfaithfulness. Okay? We've already mentioned that they're, they're worshiping idols. What else? Yep, they've forgotten God. Okay, what else? There's no judge. Who is their ruler? Abimelech, and how would you describe him? Yeah, he's pretty much a um, self-appointed king. He's evil. You know, he is power hungry. I will kill anybody that threatens my position. I will eliminate my enemy, even if it's my own brothers and my own people. No one will threaten my power. This is the kind of king that they have said, yes, lead us. That alone tells you something about them. That kind of points us to the parable that Jotham gives. And I, I know a couple of you had trouble kind of understanding the parable, but in the parable, what happens? First of all, this is interesting. This is, again, where places become interesting. Where's Jotham when he does this? Did you notice? Mount Ger Gerizim or Gerizim, however you say it. Does anybody know the significance of that? It's a mountain of blessing. When, when they came, when Moses gave them the law and they read the blessings and the curses, they stood on Mount Gerizim and read the blessings and then went over and stood on Mount Ebal and read the curses to the people. It's, it's interesting that he's standing on the Mount of Blessing saying this. It would make more sense that he would stand on Mount Ebal, wouldn't it? But if they listened to him, In the long run. <laughs> we can just, I like that, Karen. We can twist it to make it say what we want. In the end, it is a blessing. It's just interesting. It's just interesting sometimes. You know, sometimes you'll rabbit chase these, chase these places and find nothing, and other times you rabbit chase them, and, and it is really significant why he is where he is. So he is up on Mount Gerizim, and he pronounces this parable to the people. What's the point of the parable? First he talks about how they go to, let's just look at the parable, that the trees, who are the trees? It's the people, isn't it? So the trees first, they go to um, the olive tree and say, rain over us, olive tree says no. They go to the fig tree, come rain over us, the fig tree says no. They go to the vine and say, come rain over us. The vine says, 
No. Who finally says, yeah, I'll reign over you? The bramble. What is a bramble? It's a what? It's just a stickery vine. What did you say, Brenda? It's a little stickery vine, kind of a low bush, like a thorn bush. Oh, Briar Rabbit. There we go. There's a, be- there's a mental image for us there. It's where Briar Rabbit went. Yeah. So what's the point? Well, first, what does the bramble say I'll do for you? Yeah, you can come what? Sit in my shade. Does the bramble have shade? No, it doesn't even have shade. So when Jotham tells this parable, what's his point? What's he trying to say to the people, the trees? Be careful who you choose as your king. What else is he saying? A lot of parallels. I, I, I don't know if that's the point of the parable, Tony. <laughs> but, but I think you're correct, and be careful who you choose to serve. Isn't Jotham saying, look, folks, in this visual image, I'm indicting you by telling you, you know what you've just chosen today? A bramble king who is promising to offer you shade but has no ability to offer you shade. And you know what? Did you see the kind of the prediction of... It it's, doesn't sound like a curse at the time, but in 1057, it tells us it's a curse. In verse 20, but if not, you notice it says, if, if you've made a good choice here, and what are, the, what are the words that keep coming up? Hmm? Yes. If acted in good faith and integrity, did they act in good faith and integrity? No. So what else does that tell me about this broken culture? They're lacking what? Yes. Essentially, that's what he's saying. You are lacking good faith and integrity. And we see the lack of integrity in that they've gone out and killed all these people to get him king. I don't think I have it spelled right, but you all know what I mean. So look at the curse or the potential curse, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Isn't that exactly what's going to happen? Because right, it says that later he rules three years and then God sends the evil spirit. And in God's final intervention, that is what they do. Evil destroys evil. That's what's going to happen, is evil is going to destroy evil. Because evil is not bedfellows or good friends with evil. Evil just seeks for its own purposes and its own good. And that is a further indication of where, how far their brokenness has extended. 
Do you all see that? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. It was the second week, I believe, if you all weren't here, Jim took the whole idea of thorns from Genesis all the way through. And I thought of that as well, Phyllis. If you missed that day, it is well worth your time to go back online and listen to it. Um, it just fast forward through the first hour and listen to what he says about thorns. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yes. They don't cry out. Mm -hmm. No, they don't. They don't ever cry out to him at all. They don't really even mention him. I mean, does, Jotham doesn't even mention him in his parable. No. Anything else? The killing them? Oh, you mean Jotham? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, in verse what, Tony? Yeah, did y'all hear Tony? Jotham in verse 17, mentioned, he gives credit to his father for defeating the Midianites, and he doesn't mention um, God's participation in that act. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. He does? Oh, you're correct. Okay. Okay, you are correct. Thank you, Courtney, for noticing that. So God is mentioned. So he is giving some credit to God. Mm -hmm. But he's speaking wise words, isn't he? And it's interesting where he stands, what he says, and then he disappears and we don't see him anymore. And the events just, they just play out as, as he really has kind of predicted that they will. Anything else you all see to add to this? Okay, what's important? This was in your homework. What is important about this place, Shechem? This is where there's also some real irony. As you watch everything play out here, what is important about Shechem? Okay, Shechem is a city of refuge. What does that mean? For those that don't know, what does it mean that it's a city of refuge? Okay, if you accidentally kill somebody, you didn't intend to kill them, and the family members are after you for revenge, you can flee to a city of refuge and appeal to the elders there to let you in until your case can be heard and decided. So Shechem is a city of refuge. What else is what else has happened at Shechem?
He did. He, he built an altar there at Shechem. So it's after, remember, that's happening in what, Genesis 12. What, you remember, those of y'all, that verse in covenant, it's in Genesis 1 and 3, 1 through 3, when God first says, Abram, take your people, leave here, and go to a land that I'll show you. And I'm going to promise this land to your descendants. So he has come, as, as Phyllis has said, Abram with Sarah and Lot. And one of the first places he um, kind of stops at is Shechem at the Oak of Moray. The Canaanites are in the land, which we know they're there. God appears to Abram and says to your offspring, I will give you this land. And Abram builds an altar there. So this is as far as the spiritual history of God's dealings with his covenant people. This is a significant place. Okay, what else happens at Shechem? A lot of things happen there. Okay, so we'd seen the oak up here, and then now Jacob... Abram has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob calls them to say, bring me all your idols. Let's serve God wholeheartedly. They bring him their foreign gods, and he buries them. We're going to put them away. We're going to bury them in the ground because we're done with that. What else happens there? With Joshua. Okay, big contrast. If I go back and look at Joshua chapter 24 and I compare it with what's going on in Joshua 9, it's, it's such, such contrasting events. In Joshua, um, I mean, Judges 9, we see all this that we've talked about here in, in Judges 9, but then back here in Joshua, 24, somebody said he made a covenant with the people. What were the terms of the covenant? Okay, you have chosen to serve God and God alone this day, and you're going to obey him and him alone, and he makes this covenant with them. But what happens with Joshua that we'd seen happen with Jacob as well? Did you pick up on that in Joshua he does build, does he build an altar? Nope. Yes, he sets up a stone, but hang, hold on to that thought. What, when, when he says, you've chosen today to serve God only, and because you've done that, I want you to do what? Didn't he ask them to put their foreign gods away? Yeah, yeah. Do you notice how those foreign gods just keep creeping in? They just keep creeping. So Joshua, he also says, put away. Put away the foreign gods. Because you know what? You cannot have them on your shelf and be loyal to them and be loyal to God as well. Because what have we learned in here? God is a jealous God, and he wants us to worship him and him alone because he's the only one true living God anyway. Those are all false gods that have no life. So at Shechem, you see Jacob and 
Joshua at two different periods in history saying, put the foreign gods away and serve only God. Did you all pick up on that? And then he does, somebody said a, an altar. It, he does a large stone is what it says. And what is that stone supposed to do? How does it serve? It is a remembrance, but he uses specific wording. Does it say sanctuary? Does it in your, somebody turn, let's just turn there. So we can get it right. Joshua 24. If somebody gets there before me and you're ready, holler. Okay, look, look in verse 7, 27. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. Does somebody's version say something different? Okay. Just say what? ESV says witness. Um, I like that better than sanctuary because I think that's what it is. It says a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Because what would that stone, it, it's not so much a sanctuary as, okay, guys, we've made this commitment that we're going to put away our foreign gods and we're going to serve God only. And I've put this big stone up here. So every time you see it, there's your witness, there's your remembrance of the commitment that you made to the Lord. Would you all agree with that interpretation? You're welcome to disagree with me, but I will stand by it. Okay. So we see all of these places that have such importance of what God is, has been doing here in Shechem and what a, what a different um, course of events for God's dealings with his people in history with what is playing out right now in this incredibly broken, unfaithful people. Now, my next question for you then is, where is God in all this? He's only mentioned a couple times, and as capital G, little O-D, Elohim, he is never mentioned by his proper name, Yahweh. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? Well, they have forgotten him. Is he absent? How do you know? He's, so we all agree he is not absent. How do, I know, how do I know he's not absent? Sin and evil spirit. So we saw him having some activity there, that he sent an evil spirit. Okay, what else? Okay, he is faithful to his people. He may appear absent, but he is not absent. He may be absent in the forefront of their minds, but he himself is not absent in the working out of his redemptive plan, his purposes, his sovereign control 
of all of history. He may have let Abimelech rule for three years. He may have let Abimelech do the things that he did to seek power, and he gave him a pretty long leash, but he still had him at the end of that leash. Do you all see that? Other thoughts about where is God that he is not absent? And why is that important to know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What'd you say, Patty? It is a good reminder to us that he is never absent. He is always there. What'd you say, Anne? He is always there waiting for us to cry out. Because where else have we seen? What's our context in this book? Remember, context is a sentence, then a paragraph, then a chapter, then the book, then the whole thing. We have not seen them cry out and God intervene, but, they, but we know that he does do that, right? He does have that pattern of seeing the distress and, and stepping in and delivering them, and he will do it again because he will be faithful to his covenant promises. What, Phyllis? He's always saving a remnant. What did you say over here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look at the end, look at the very end of chapter 9 starting in verse 55, where God is mentioned again. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Then God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So God is sovereignly, he is always sovereignly on his throne and in control of events. He may let evil men have um, a leash, but at some point, he will let them go in the direction they go. Y'all that did Romans last semester, do you remember Romans 1? What happens? When man who has had God revealed in all of creation chooses to suppress who he is and worship the creature rather than the creator, what does God do? He gives them over. You want to go that way? I will take my hands off and let you go that way. I think I'm right in saying that, because it's hard for me to think that God himself does evil, but that's what's kind of happening here at the end is, I, y'all want to go that way? I'll just take my hands off and let the evil that you are destroy yourself and each other. Would you agree with that, Scott? Yeah. Okay. Why is, why is this? I mean, somebody mentioned we're in an election. It's just the craziest election I have ever seen in my 58 years. 
And somebody texted me last night, where is Jesus? And I said, uh, next to the Father at the right hand on the throne, and God is on the throne. That was my response. Because that, that's, what, that's what some of this, this, to me, the main point of this story in the context of Judges is to see how far these people have sunk and how, how the further deterioration. Remember, Jim and I told you at the beginning of the study, we're going to see a cycle of sin, but it's more a spiral than a cycle because it, gets, it doesn't go in a perfect circle. We see them for, uh, dropping further and further into sin as this cycle repeats itself. So that's, that's why, the, you know, when you ask the question, why is this story even included? He's not even a judge. It is showing how far deteriorated these people are. And we're going to continue to see that. But a second thing that really applies to today is the peace and the comfort of knowing God is still on the throne. He still has his scepter in his right hand, and it has not dropped. Because where is he? He is behind the curtain through all of these events. Nothing is catching him by surprise. He will intervene when he needs to. Do you all agree with that? Okay. Comments, questions? Okay, go ahead. Um, I know he does with Saul. I don't know if that's the only other time I'd have to look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's one of those things kind of like, I think you mentioned last week that um, Brenda and I didn't bring up the whole, what was the angel of the Lord? Was it a theophany and things like that? And I purposely just kind of stayed away from that. But, uh, you know, the, the things like that and God sending an evil spirit or kind of rabbit chases you can go look at and try to figure out exactly what that means. And then find people all over the map with different interpretations. And then you're really confused. So, yep, it's a huge rabbit trail. But if that thing, if that kind of thing excites you, you just go for it. Have at it. I pick and choose my rabbit tails, <laughs> trails that I go on. Okay, let's wrap up this particular period of history. In chapter 10, 1 through 5, we see two more judges. Little is said about them, but what is said about them? Who are they? Tola and Jair. And combined, how long do they judge? 45 years they judge. Do we know very much about them? What do we know about them? Okay, Jair has 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and 30 cities. He lived in the hill country of Ephraim. Apparently, he was prosperous. Probably, I'm hoping he had more than one wife, that he didn't, <laughs> that 30 sons weren't from one. <laughs> I'm hoping he had more than one, that poor woman that he had several wives, but apparently it was a time of prosperity under him. That's about the only thing we can extrapolate from that. But we can say that they, what's different from them and this non-judge? Do you see that word? They arose. 
they arose. We've also, if you think back, we saw that with Deborah. There arose a judge, Deborah, who was like a mother over Israel. The implication is God is the one that brings these people to the forefront. So they somehow had God's blessing, and they were included. Um, yes, they are minor judges, and minor just means they get less ink but in the scriptures, but they were judges of equal stature to the others, and God appointed them, and they did judge Israel. And so there's evidence right there. Where's God? Is he absent? No, because he's raising up other judges. Now, like I said in the beginning, if anybody that came in late, it does not say the land had rest, though. At Gideon, that stops, and we don't see that phrase anymore, that the land had rest. Anything else about them you all want to point out or include? You know what? They are those, when you look at this, those two men if you want to jot that down out to the side on your observation worksheet, that is the arising of those two men is the grace of God evidence in, in bringing those men to the forefront to judge. Even when all this, this is the state of where they have been under Abimelech. There's his grace intervening. And that's an amazing thing. Okay, questions, comments? Oh, I'll finish early unless somebody has something to say. Yeah. We'll let you just a second. Okay, Tony, what? Yeah. You, you render, if you sow the land with salt, then it's no longer can produce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Destroy. So, yeah, so much importance of God's dealings with them, and then this evil thing happens there, and it's destroyed. Okay, Pat, you want to say, you want to have the final word? Uh-huh. You're, the land will no longer be productive. You've ruined it by um, salting it. Uh, does it say as if or does it say that they did? What verse is that, Tony? In 45? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was a kind of a scorched earth approach. That's what it was. It was a scorched earth. I mean, I'm not only going to kill you and take you away, I'm going to make sure you can't come back. Phyllis. There's irony in all of it. If you didn't hear Phyllis, she said, is there irony in the fact that they carried Joseph's bones all the way from um, Egypt to bury them at Shechem? It's just such, I don't even want to use the, the word irony. I want to say tragedy. 
that his bones are buried there, that they make this covenant, they put this stone, this is where they've made a commitment to put away the foreign gods. Twice in their history, the foreign gods have been given up and buried there. But then the evil actions of the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech that happened there. It's, it's just very sad. I don't know how to put any kind of wise theological statement on that, but um, it's, it's just very tragic. That, that that is the extent of, of where they are. That they have no, they don't honor or respect or hallow the ground that is part of their theological history. That sounded good, didn't it? I can't. <laughs> okay, any other burning thoughts? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's an interesting thought, though. There are some commentators that kind of brought that up. Was it? Mm -hmm. Like all of them on one stone or the same stone that was there? You want to know who the certain woman was? When you get to heaven, you can ask. <laughs> yeah. And how did she pick up that big stone? It was really heavy. Everybody wondered that. No one had an explanation. So, I, you know, what, what do you think, Noel? Do you think it was the same stone? I think the context supports you, that the, yes, that it probably was the same stone and they are desecrating because they seem to have no respect or honor for him and what he's doing. That's how far away they've gotten from him. So it does add texture to the story if that's the truth, doesn't it? And we could certainly support it. Good observation. Okay. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. It's all very interesting. Okay, give me the pleasure of finishing one minute early. <laughs> Take a break, and then um, Scott will come and talk to us about discerning God's will. Okay, <clears throat> so we're going we're gonna to pick, pick up where a little bit of where you left off last week. I wasn't here um, last week, but um, but Nancy had told me that you guys talked a little bit about Gideon and these signs, these miraculous signs, and there was maybe some questions and maybe uh, a growing desire to wrestle with, okay, how, how do we deal with these signs and why don't we get clear signs? Um, and so I don't know if you've had that question. Um, there, aren't, there aren't any, like, those kind of miraculous signs necessarily in chapter 9, but there certainly were with Gideon. <clears throat> And so Gideon has these very clear signs. God makes it very clear what he wants of Gideon. And, and we're left going, yeah, that would be nice. I, I want some clear signs. I remember first kind of wrestling with this when we were teaching through Acts at the table. I, so I work with college students. In fact, I would say probably the number one question that, that the students that I know are wrestling with is, okay, what's God's will for me? 
in, in my life? What, what does he want of me? How does he want me to, what, what career path does he want me to choose? What does he want me to do? Kelsey's never really asked, answered, asked that question. I think I've met with her six times about this. Um, and I never have answers, yeah, so she's not going to hear anything new today, but so that's a very popular question, and I remember teaching through Acts, and, and we got into chapter 9, where Paul had this Damascus Road, literally, experience, and we think, wow, that would be awesome, well, maybe not so much, he blinded him, um, and then we get to chapter 10, and, and Peter has this, Peter and Cornelius have this very clear revelation from God, they're both in prayer, and God speaks to them very clearly, and, and we're left going, man, that would be awesome. I feel like I'm left just talking to the ceiling. Like, God, help me out here. Anybody ever been there? Um, I, I, I think that's the case. I, I think you know, this, this question is important for us to really wrestle with because it's not only maybe where some of you are now, but some of you certainly were at one, at one time or will be, but even, even maybe... If you've maybe wrestled with this and, and, and worked through this, this issue, this question that we have, you certainly will have somebody come to you with it. So I, th I think every single one of us, whether we're dealing with it now, have dealt with it, will deal with it, or will help somebody else deal with it, we're going to have to wrestle with this, this question. Why isn't God, why doesn't he make his will more clear to us? I mean, after all, it, like, how can he hold us accountable if we clearly want to do things that he wants us to do and he doesn't make it clear to us and then we do something and we make a mistake, how can he hold us accountable to that? Anybody ever felt that way? You may not really want to say it that way, but, you know, and so we've got to deal with this angst of why won't God be more clear? And so let's start, here, here's my hope for today. My hope is that, um, and we're going to start with this word, humility, but my hope is that we would, grow in approaching God in humility with our questions, um, and then also that we would grow in learning how to be more honest with him and, and be more forthright with him, and, and as Jesus teaches, to be persistent and to be bold in our prayers and in our requests to God. And I believe those, those things can exist, a, a humility before the presence of God and a persistence and boldness before God. I think both of those can, can exist because they, they existed in Jesus and he, and he wants us to become like him. So, so I believe those things can happen. So let's wrestle with this question of, of why, why God isn't so clear. So here's what I want you to think about is anytime we have a comment about God or, or a complaint about God or a request of God um, or anytime we pray to God, it reveals what we believe about God. So in, in most of the cases with students that I talk to, they've been praying and praying and praying, God, what do you want me to do? What, what classes do you want me to take? What career do you want me to, who do you want me to date? Um, you know, all these questions. Uh, and, and so the, I want them to picture how, how is God... When, you, when you're asking God, what, what do you picture God being? Like up in heaven with his arms crossed going, I'm not answering your question until you, you know, jump through the hoops that I want you to jump through. Or I'm going to make you suffer a little bit just because I'm God and I want you to know I'm in control. I mean, what kind of posture do you think God has toward us when we come to him with requests? And, 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 and so we may not think that way, but I think we need to. 
we need to wrestle with what are, what are my thoughts about this? How does this reveal who I believe God is and how I believe he acts? Because sometimes when we ask these questions, it's almost like we want God to be on the stand and we want to cross-examine him. Okay, God, so all these people in the Bible, you made it very clear what you wanted them to do. So clearly you can do that. And I know you're a sovereign in control. And so why haven't you made that more clear with me? I mean, if you want me to do what you want me to do, why don't you just tell me what you want me to do so I don't have to try to figure it out? And, and, and so when we have this posture of, okay, God, I'm going to question you. I'm going to cross-examine you. I'm going to get, I need you to do something for me. We are forgetting some, some very significant things. And, and, and we, we may not come out and say it that way, but we have to deal with the fact that there is at some level a root of that there with us, that we want, we're not happy with God being the way he is, and we want him to be a little better. We want him to be a little different. And, and so we have to deal with that first, because anytime we approach God, we've got we've to come to him in a, in a place of humility because of who he is and what he's done. And the Bible gives us very, very clear picture of who God is. So if you think about how God, um, th- this idea that God is silent, he's, he's not speaking, he's not telling me what he wants me to do, that God is silent, and, and we wrestle with that in this corner here. Where is God in chapter 9 of Judges? Is he, is he there? And, and so what we see is God speaking to Adam and Eve, to Cain, to Abraham, to Noah, to Abraham, and on Isaac and Jacob and Moses and on down the line. And then you see him coming in the presence of Jesus, in the form of Jesus. You see God with us speaking very clearly some things. And, and if you heard the sermon this past, past weekend, like Drew laid it out because Jesus laid it out that it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a follow him or not, obey him or not choice. And he's made it clear. He made several things clear. So you have Jesus coming, and then you have his apostles um, through the Holy Spirit speaking to the church. And then you have later on uh, this compiling of, of letters that, that the Spirit had inspired these speakers to write and gave us this word. And so God has spoken a lot. So I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to see what the Bible says about this. This is a, a great place to start whenever we, whenever we want to know if God is silent and why won't God speak to us. Hebrews 1, verse 1. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in other words, he's acknowledging this is how God has spoken. In fact, if you've, if you've been to church, you've heard Jim say, and you've heard maybe some of us say, um, that God was the only God that came down on Mount Sinai and gave them a very clear instructions about how they are to have a relationship, how his people are to have a relationship with him. All the other people worshiping all these other gods, they were doing things, you know, juggling, 
dancing, whatever. It, okay, if that worked, keep doing that until that doesn't work anymore. Um, whatever, it, whatever we can do to get God to give us rain, we do that until that doesn't work, and then we figure out. So they're always trying to, all the other people with all these other gods are trying to appease God and try to figure out how to, what does God, what does he want from us? God comes down and makes it very clear. He speaks very clearly. And, and he speaks through his prophets. But then he says, but in these last days, and if you know in, in the Bible, anytime the New, New Testament refers to last days, he's referring to now. He's referring to the time when Jesus came to now. Like these are actually the time when Jesus ascended into now. These are the last days. Now, they, it's been 2,000 years. It feels like eternity sometimes, but these are the last days in which he's referring to. So, in other words, the author is saying, saying, he used to speak this way, but he came and he spoke through his son. And, and he goes on, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And any time in Scripture when it says he sat down, there is this, it is finished. So Jesus is the final word of God. If, if God never came to us personally and spoke to us personally ever again, he has said more than he needs to say in Jesus. And he didn't stop there. In his grace, he gave us his word. And so, so before we say, okay, God, why won't you give me specific revelations, specific instructions, specific answers to my specific questions, we have to deal with, wow, God, you have spoken a lot. You have said a lot. And in Jesus, he is your final word. I have everything I need. In him. And then I have everything else I need in your word. But God in his grace doesn't even stop there. Because as you know, he sends his spirit to dwell in us. To have fellowship with him. To have communion and relationship with him. And this is a, this is a relationship. This is a two-way street with God. And so the part that, that we'll spend the majority of our time figuring out is, how does that work? How do we, now that we recognize who God is and that he's spoken and that he doesn't actually, we don't deserve anything other than anything else. He's spoken enough clearly in Jesus and he's given us his word and his divine revelation of how he's acted with his people. And so we have more than we need in, in what he's already spoken and said. So, but then we have to wrestle with, okay, then, well, how does this, this two-way street work? How, how, how does this relationship work? Because Jesus says, um, ask and seek and knock, right? Jesus presents this relationship. He says, and I'm not going to get this exactly right because um, it's somewhat off the cuff, but he says, who of, you, who of you, if you had a son and he asked for, I can't remember what it is, pet or something, but instead you give him a snake or ask for food, is that what it is? Ask for food, instead you give him a snake. And, and he's, what is it? A puppy? No, it's not a puppy. I do know that. Um, 
What is it, a fish or something? Is it food, bread? Bread and stone, fish and stone. Okay, so you get the contrast. You ask for something, and, and you, as a, as a person, you, you would not give the opposite of what your kids are asking for. If they really ask, came to you for something, you wouldn't give them. He says, how much more would God, who knows you and loves you, not want to give good gifts to you, right? It's this idea. So, so this is who the Bible presents God. So, so this is where we can come in humility and we can be thankful for how he's spoken to us through Jesus and in his word. And then we can say, but God didn't stop there. I keep his heart and his posture and his desire for us is to bless his children. Like he loves us. It's crazy, but it's true. And so he does want to speak. He does want to guide us. He does want to um, answer our questions and, 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 help, and stretch us and grow us and discipline us and all these things because he loves us. So, um, so, so I, I, let me say this. It is okay. We'll get, we'll get to this one. It is okay to ask these questions. So don't hear me saying we're, I'm not allowed to ask for specific questions. I'm not allowed to want God to give me something, to give me guidance and direction, to have specific um, questions that, that I want answered. If there's any, anything wrong with that, I mean, there, so because the Bible seems to present this, this aspect, we have to always take, take into consideration what, what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Remember that you're talking to the creator of the universe, and so let your words be few. I believe that's Ecclesiastes 5. But it's in Ecclesiastes, I know that. Um, I should know my Bible more. But, so let our words be few. And, and then Jesus says, come, ask, seek, knock. Pray with boldness. Pray with persistence. He gives that, that, um, that uh, parable of the persistent widow. He teaches in Luke 11 about, about prayer. And he, he uses this great story that we don't get because in our culture, if, if my neighbor came to me at midnight and wanted something, I would call the police is probably what I would do. But in their culture, it was a sign of, wow. So he, he says, you know, who of you, if you had a neighbor, came to you at midnight because the traveler had came to their house and they came to you to help give them some food to feed this traveler. And you tell them, go away, for I'm in bed and my kids are with me. But it says, you won't. But, it, but because he asks with boldness, you will get up and you will give him whatever he needs. Why would they do that? And in their culture, it was like, they, they must see me as someone they can trust and someone who can provide something that they need. And wow, what an honor. That is, that a neighbor would come to me at midnight with a need. So, yeah, I'll do whatever they need me to do. And, and his whole point is, when you go to God in boldness and you ask in prayer, you're showing God that you truly believe he's the one that can answer your questions. He's the one that can meet your needs. And that's the point of the, the, the parable of the, the persistent widow. How much more this wicked judge finally gives in to this woman who's persistently, annoyingly, coming to him, how much more would a good God, not a, not a wicked judge who, who gives in and does the right thing, but a good God who wants to do the right thing, but because of your persistence, you, it shows who you believe he is. So, so there is a huge part of that, and, and I want to make that clear, but we'll get to it. 
So I want to talk a little bit about what the Bible describes as God's will in the Bible. Two things, sovereign will and commanded will. There, there seems to be, there's, God, there's this picture of God that uh, there is a sovereign will of God. This, this stands outside of us. This, um, we don't have control of this. This happens regardless of, of us. Um, his purposes will prevail. Many are the plans of man's heart, but his purpose, God's purposes will prevail. I believe that's Proverbs 19, 21. So we see this in, in the story, the, 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 we call it the meta-narrative, the overarching story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, redemption restoration. Like God's purposes and his plans are happening. And we see God in judges, even though we don't see him Maybe we see him sending an evil spirit, but we don't see him as active as he was in Judges 9, as we did in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Um, but he's clearly there, and he's clearly orchestrating things, and things are happening, and, and the story is unfolding, and he's, he's, he's sovereign. Um, then you have the commanded will. You have all these things in the Bible that we're told to do, and God and his grace and his love for us gives us a choice in the matter to do them or not to do them as as drew made abundantly clear this past week we have a choice in this matter and we can do them or not do them and if we do them then those those um, contribute to our sanctification our salvation our sanctification if we don't do those things they there are um, consequences to that, and there are things that happen as a result of that, and so, so there's this commanded will. Now, what I'm not going to do is solve a 1,500-year-old debate about how the commanded will and the sovereign will of God all fit together, because when I somehow, in his sovereignty, when I disobey him, it somehow still works out in his sovereignty. I don't understand it. I'm not going to, don't ask me a question about Calvinism. Don't have me solve the Calvinism Arminianism debate. Okay, I'm not going there. Um, that's for Ryan and Jim and smarter guys than me. But 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 we see this. There there is this commanded will, and when I disobey him, there's consequences. And we see in Judges nine, there's a clear walking away from the things of God that happens, and and God stands back. And I like what you said. He kind of just gives them what they want, and what they want is not really what they want but it's kind of what they wanted. That's what we see in Romans 1, too, giving them over to the desires, right? And, and so you never want God to say, all right, your will be done. You never want that to be the case. Instead, we want to say, God, your will be done, right? That's a C.S. Lewis great debate quote, that, that uh, you'll, either, you'll, either, you'll either say, thy will be done, or God will say to you, thy will be done, and you don't want the second. You don't want the latter. So, so in the case of something tragic um, that, that would happen, like, uh, like a child sold into, into sex slavery, okay? So is that the will of God, that that child be sold into this gruesome and grievous industry? And at some level, we have to say, well, God is sovereign and in control. And there's nothing that happens that God doesn't know about. There's nothing that happens that God isn't sovereign over. So at some level, he's sovereign over this. 
And but then is that the will of God? Well, no, that's not. It's not the will that those men would violate God's all of God's laws and sell this child. It's not that it would not be God's will that this child be experience these grievous acts, right? And so it's not the will of God, and yet God is sovereign over it. And again, I'm not going to solve how this all fits together and works. I just know that there is a commanded will, and we're, we're commanded to, to follow and obey. So that, that needs to play a part in how we understand what's, what is the will of God, and has the Bible made it clear what I'm to do, or, or, or is what I'm asking something that is outside of and separate from? So any thoughts or questions? I have, I have some very practical things I want to get to, because that's kind of where I tend to want to spend time in. Any, any thoughts or questions on some of the, the bigger overarching ideas that I've talked about? I doubt that I've solved any of this for you. So I'm assuming you'll have questions later or you'll ask, you'll ask Nancy next week. Next week. Um, so I have fourth. Yeah, email me. Yeah, It's nancy at sunnybrook.org. Um, so, so then the question is, what can we do? How, how can we know? And so I want to give you four, four things. And under the second thing, I have three things. So it's really seven things, but regardless. Um, so four things. Okay? First one is, is, is simple, and first one is, is actually something you, you've already demonstrated that you want and you're doing this, and it's, it's to seek and know God and his word. To seek and to know God and his word. Um, when we approach the Bible, I'm convinced that our motives matter when we read the Bible. And if we read it for, for any other reason than, than to, to want to know God and want to, to understand who he is and what he's done and, and how, that, how we are to live in response to him, then I, I think at some level we're, we can be playing games trying to grow in knowledge and trying to impress whoever and or just trying to feel better about ourselves and check a box. And so I think when we sit down to read, we've got to seek to know God because he wants to know us. He knows us. He, he wants us to know him is, is a better way of saying it. Um, nothing, re, nothing that God reveals is going to contradict his word to you, right? So that's under this first one. But nothing, nothing that God... Um, as you seek to know and love him and, and, and know his word that he's given to us, he's spoken plenty through. Um, so recognize that nothing that he gives you is going to contradict what's in his word. Here's the second one. And this one I'll spend a little more time. It's pray and seek for God's guidance. That's very simple. Very simple. I have some, I have some specifics I want to talk through. Pray and seek God's guidance. We don't see this necessarily as much in Gideon as, as if you think about in the book of Acts in chapter 10 with Cornelius and Peter. It says both were in prayer and God revealed. And so I think that's pretty significant. I think there is a place where, where as we're in prayer, as we posture ourselves to God and put ourselves in a position where God can speak to us and not, it's not always a one-sided, God, I have, a lot, I have 15 things I want to talk to you about and then i got to go. That's not, I don't know any relationship where, where one person talks the whole time and we, we think, oh, that's a healthy relationship. 
Um, no, there's got to be communication. And, and so when, we, when I'm the one doing all the talking, then, I'm, I'm, then, then this relationship with God is probably somewhat of my fabrication of a relationship with God. But if, but if, if I'm not posturing myself to hear from, to, to, to let God speak and reveal, then I'm in control. And I don't think we want to be in control of our relationship with God. So pray and seek for God's guidance and, and recognize that there are specific, this is where I believe, there are specific implications to his revealed will. So for instance, uh, I'll give a, just a real simple example. You read, you read the Great Commission. Everybody, most of you are familiar with that. You know, Jesus says, go and make disciples of, and, 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 and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you wherever you go. And so you have, you have this, com- this command, um, this commission that Jesus gives us to make, go and make disciples. Well, I could read that and go, okay, I need to talk to my neighbor. I doubt that when Genevieve reads that, she thinks she needs to talk to Stephen Clark, my next-door neighbor. Because like, there are specific implications to how I, I, I respond to the Spirit based on his word. His, his revealed will is that I'm to go and make disciples and to spread the gospel and to talk about Jesus. But the, the specific implications for me is, it's, i got to talk to my neighbor. That's been on my heart, and I need, we, need to, we need to do that. I need to do that. So, so does that make sense? Like it's God's revealed will, but there are specific implications, and God's Spirit kind of gives those to us as we posture ourselves, as we open and say, okay, God, what is it? How do you want me to live? So think about um, when it comes to special revelation, um, you have all these examples throughout the Bible of God bringing his special revelation to his people. And I, for us, I think the most... Uh, the most, uh, what, would, what, what would be the best way to say it? The, the, the example given in us in Scripture that is most relative to us, I think, is probably the book of Acts. Because this is post-resurrection. This is when the church is now trying to figure out how to be the church, how to be the body of Christ in the world, how to go out and to spread the news. And so, so that's where we are. That's where we live. We, we don't live in the period of Judges. Right, we live we live kind of in Acts twenty nine, so to speak, if you will. There's only eight cha- twenty eight chapters, so twenty ninth is like us. Um, so, so Acts would be a good example. But if you've read through Acts, you go, okay. I wish it, I wish Sunnybrook was like Acts. That would be awesome. Um, and so you have the examples. Well, I've felt this as I've read through Acts and read through the New Testament. Like, why? Why am I not seeing the things, the same things? And how come, how come it isn't more clear? And how come the you know, same kind of questions we've asked? Here's, here's the thing about Acts, the special revelation. Um, first one is this. It's always kingdom-minded or gospel-centered or ministry-minded. Anytime there's a special revelation in Acts, it's always about the kingdom going forward, the gospel spreading, or ministry happening. Okay, so now, but this is the example in Acts. Now let's go back to our example. Who should I vote for? God, just make it clear to me. Um, and some of you are going, uh, it is clear. And so anyway, that's another issue. 
you know what I'm, you know what I'm realizing through this, through this election? And Nancy, you kind of said it. And I, th I think you guys will agree. It seems like the older you are, the more you see what's at stake with each election. Is that, is that the, the case? I've never thought, I've never really realized that in, until now. I'm 39, so I guess I'm, I have gray hair, I have, I have heart issues, and I've got all kinds of issues. So I'm going, wow, I could leave my kids in a mess. I have a responsibility here, right? Side note. So getting back, so this, anytime there's special revelation and acts, there's, it's gospel-centered, it's ministry-minded, it's kingdom-going-forth kinds of things. And, and we come back and go, well, you know, college students, should I date him or not? Should I take that class or not? Should I buy this house or not? Should, should, should I retire this year or next year? And so we have these very specific questions that, that, that aren't really centered in how, the, how is the gospel going forward? How is the kingdom of God, right? So that, that's significant. We need to... We need to be honest about the kinds of questions we're asking and the kinds of questions we're wanting God to come down and give us a clear sign about. The second one is, is that the special revelation are the exception more than they are the rule. Uh, the leaders at our um, college ministry, we get together every Wednesday morning for prayer and, and we're reading through a book together. This, the one we're reading right now is called Jesus Continued by J.D. Greer. And it's, the subtitle is, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. So if you've ever wondered, man, it'd be nice to have Jesus just walk with me every, every day, sit next to me in class or, or sit class. Like, you know, I see I'm used to this college context. Uh, or, or be driving next to me or sitting at Aspen drinking coffee, whatever it is you do um, at work. And he's saying, no, 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 God, God made it clear. Jesus actually made it clear. It's better that the Spirit come and that I leave, and, and Jesus says that I leave. In this, in this, it's been a great book. I, I really do recommend it. But I love what he says here. He says, eventually, however, he's talking about Paul and, and, and uh, these miraculous um, revelations that God does in, in the book of Acts. He says, Paul means, uh, Paul's means for following the Spirit did not entail getting up each day He's kind of tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Getting up each day, waiting on a message to spell itself out in the foam on his cappuccino. Um, so if you, like, if you like sarcasm, you'll like this book. It's a mixture of, like, really spirit-led, solid stuff and sarcasm. So, you know, those are two of my favorite things. Um, he says, Paul based most of his decisions, listen, Paul based most of his decisions on wisdom he gleaned from the scriptures not on extra revelation supplied by the Spirit in magic eight-ball fashion. And then he explains that. You know, where you peer into your heart and you see what words float to the top and assume that's the Spirit? Several, a lot of people kind of operate in that, in that realm. He says, getting guidance by revelation was the unexpected acceptance or uh, exception, not the rule. In other words, he's saying, Paul and these, these apostles had studied the Scriptures. They... They knew who God was, and they had fallen in love with him. And, and so they were compelled because of Jesus to go out and to proclaim the gospel. And along the way, the Spirit would, would guide and direct and move and speak and reveal in these miraculous ways. But that, 
But th- they weren't waking up each day going, okay, God, now what do you want me to do? They were, they were compelled because of who they knew God was based on their understanding of God through the scriptures and in Jesus. And he says, yet even in, in these, this extreme dependence, they never reduced the Spirit's activity in their lives to some formula. They grounded themselves in the word, obeyed Jesus' general commands, and looked to the Spirit to lead them, watching for him, but assuming he was leading, even if they couldn't see or feel him. And I, I just really appreciated him saying that. And I think, I think that's helpful for us as, we, as we're wanting special revelation, special specific answers to our specific questions. Um, Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You've probably heard that verse. This taking delight in the Lord is the first step, right? As, as we delight in him, he changes our hearts and our hearts' desires. We, we start to desire the things that he wants for us um, because they're his desires. Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be, will be given to you as well. So as we seek his kingdom, as we seek um, him, I mean, all these extra things we added. And, and then after a while, I believe we just stopped wanting all these extra things as much as we just want him more and more. And so I believe prayerfully, patiently, persistently pursuing God is prayerfully, patiently, persistently pursuing God, the four Ps. Um, it's got to be paramount in another P in seeking guidance from the Spirit, guidance from God about specific things. So here's here's uh, as Paul would say, this is I, not the Lord. Um, here's my experience. Okay, as I've sat back and thought about how ha- how has God revealed His will to me as I stay in relationship with Him? How's He revealed His will to me? Let me say those words again. Prayerfully, patiently, persistently pursuing God. Prayerfully, patiently, persistently pursuing God. So here's, here's how God has guided me. Um, and it's in three ways. Clear answers. Doors to walk through. No clear answers. As I've kind of looked back, like most of the times where I felt like God guiding me has fit into one of those three categories. Clear answers, those have come. Um, doors to walk through, I'll explain what I mean by that. And then no clear answers. I'm talking to the ceiling here, God. I'm getting nothing back from you. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So clear answers. Let me give you an example. When, I, when, when, when we were living, in, my family and I were living in California, um, doing ministry there, and Jim called and up, just turned my world upside down and had me pray about coming to here. And at first, my answer was, are you crazy? I don't know anything about college ministry, and I don't know anything about Oklahoma. Because um, I wasn't doing college ministry in California. I was doing other things, another kind of form of ministry, I guess, adult ministry. And so, but as we began to talk, and as I began to pray, um, I, I began to see all the ways that God had kind of orchestrated things over the last year to, to get to this point where this seemed like a, this seemed like a no-brainer to me. 
Now, convincing my wife, that was another, that was another side note. When we, when I first mentioned to her, okay, hon, Jim's, we've now, Jim and I have talked a couple times, and I think I'm actually kind of serious about praying about this. She's like, okay, I'll Google Stillwater. That very moment, a tornado was happening. <laughs> I kid you not. So she goes on. I don't know the date. It would have been May of, two, May of 2010. You guys remember the tornado of May of 2010? Okay. So that very moment, she Googles Stillwater, and the first thing that comes up is Stillwater Tornado. She's just like, what? And so she clicks on it, and she finds it. There's a tornado happening right now. And so I called, tried to call Jim, and it, it went straight to voicemail. I found out later, Jim, uh, he wasn't, no, he's not, they're not here. Jim was in like the storm, or like a storm cellar of somebody of, um, gosh, who's his neighbor? They're in their life group. Um, oh, she works in the children's ministry. No. No. No, keep going. Come on. No. Um, older, older couple. No. She, she works. Denise, yes, the Weavers, the Weavers. Okay, so, so they, live, they live right up the street. And Jim and, like, several people were in the Weavers, you know, concreted room, whatever that was. And they said, hey, Jim, there's somebody from California calling. Name's Scott. He said, don't answer. Don't answer. That was the backstory. Anyway, so let me give you even more backstory about my wife. She grew up in, she grew up in um, southern Missouri-ish, about an hour north of Joplin. And, and I don't think she mind me telling you. She grew up in a double-wide trailer. So she grew up in Tornado Alley in a, in a trailer. So the thought of tornadoes was like a major scar for her, right? So this is all happening when I say, honey, I think, I think I'm really serious about praying about coming to California. Okay, I'll Google it. What? You know, that's the backstory. So anyway, as we begin to pray about it, I, I begin to see this, this was a there was some very clear signs to me that God is orchestrating some things and God was moving in this direction. And, and I really didn't feel like God was, you know, strong-arming me into coming to Oklahoma. This became, honestly, became like I was excited about this opportunity. It, went, it, it took about two months, but it went from, are you crazy, to I'm really excited about this. And I can only attribute that to God working in my heart and God giving this opportunity. And so, that to me was a clear sign, and I have not once, no, my wife is a different story, I have not once regretted, not, not even for a second, not regretted, and I second-guess everything in my life, so that to me is another sign, so clear signs, doors to walk through, Here, here's an example that I'm living right now, um, so I mentioned I have heart issues, I've had, in the last six years, I've had three uh, uh, AFib it, uh, episodes. They're kind of random, and the last one was about a month ago, and the one before that was in May of last year. The one before that was five years before in May of um, 2010, right before we moved here, actually. Anyway, so, so I've had these random heart issues, and, you know, after the last one in May, it was like, just, let's just see. It's been five years. Let's just not do anything. Try, you know, extreme, let's just see what's happening. And then it happens eight months later, so now it's the times are seem to be, the, the time in between are decreasing, right? And when I have it, by the way, I don't have any symptoms. My doctors told me this is, this is an inconvenience more than an emergency. 
Um, it's really not as big a deal, but but it is a big deal, obviously. And so after this last one, I thought, okay, I need to probably be proactive and start thinking about what to do about this. And so as I as we prayed about it, it was like, okay, well, meet with a uh, meet with uh, an electrophysiologist, which is a person who this is a door, right? Got opened. Um, someone someone came in. You know, the doctor provided someone. We called. They were available quicker than I thought they would be. We met with him. He there's basically I have two options, medicine or ablation. Those are the two options. And and so that that's where I'm at right now. And and I I'm leaning one way, but I'm also I feel like there's one there's one more person I need to talk to about it. I don't know why. I just feel like I need to see what this one person says. It's a close friend of mine who I think has a perspective that I need. But to me, that's another door. Like, there isn't a clear sign. There's just another door. And so, I don't know. I'm, I haven't talked to him yet. I'm hoping I see him tonight, and then we can talk about it this week. But um, So, we'll see. I'm going to walk through that door, and then I'm going to get on the other side of that door and go, okay, there might be another door. Or there might be a, there might be a clear answer. But, but I don't know if you guys have experienced this, where it's like God's not giving you the answer. He's just giving you doors, and you walk through, and then there's another door, and you walk through, and there's another door, and you walk through, and you go, nope, clear answer. Or, or you get to the last one, which for me is no clear answer. And my example for this was whether or not I should do seminary. So I, um, uh, three times I attempted to do seminary, and on the last one I finally decided to. The other two times I signed up for it, paid my fees, was the second time I was literally hours away from going to pick out my classes and start doing this. And we were in the middle of moving. I had two small kids. And I was praying like crazy, God, I really feel like you want me to do this. Yet we have all this other stuff going on. Is this the time? And nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Until midnight the night before I had to meet with this lady at 8 in the morning. Midnight, I finally called and says, I, I just called and left a message. I'm not coming. I'm not going to do seminary right now. I'm going to put it off till later. And uh, then fast forward five, about three or four years, and then actually five years, and then I decided to do it right when I moved here. And it was the same thing. I moved here. We moved states. We had three kids now and starting a new job, a new ministry in a new state. And we bought a house and all this stuff, and seminary was starting up, and I'm, I'm calling Jim the night before. We're supposed to start classes. Jim, I don't know if I need to do this. He talked me off the ledge and convinced me I should, and I'm glad he did. But, but I never got any clear answer. It was always like it was like, which I, I assume some of you have had 18 year olds who've grown up in your home and then start becoming an adult, and you say, "Okay, hun, I'm not going to make all your decisions for you because I've guided you. I'm going to be here for you to support you. You know what I would like, you know." But you've got to figure this out. You've got to make decisions. And so, and I, I think God sometimes allows us to be stretched and grow in what we know of his word and then how we are to live that out. I think if he just comes down every time and says, here's what I want you to do. We never have to work for it, if you will. We never have to wrestle with it. We never have to be stretched. And sometimes, sometimes decisions decisions come and we don't know what to do and it's like a train is leaving the station get on or, or stay off get on or stay off and we think oh my gosh if I get on I could make the biggest mistake of my life and the reality is 
there's a, there's a station down the road. If you get on and you realize I shouldn't have got on, you get off at the next station. And you call someone and get a ride back. Or if you don't get on, okay, there's another train coming. My life isn't over. And maybe I didn't, okay, God, what do I do? What do I do? And, and you trust God. And you don't blame him if, if you maybe pick the wrong thing. You just, okay, what do you want me to learn from this? And I think that's personally how I've experienced let me give you the last two things, and then maybe a couple minutes for questions. Man, I went way longer than I thought I could. Um, typical pastor, I guess. Third one is keep an attitude of repentance whenever we approach God. Keep an attitude of repentance. This is what we see didn't happen in Judges 6 through 9. We, we, we see God being active in Gideon, but we, but we also see him calling his son which I never knew this. That's a great, Abimelech means my father, the king. Like Gideon, you know, saying one thing, but acting something different. And, and we don't see this, this attitude of repentance, and we don't see it, he doesn't model it, and so therefore his son takes it to a whole other level and turns and rejects God, and the people follow him, and God lets them have what they want in some sense. And so keep an attitude of repentance. I also think of Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14 is a story of the, the people of the elders of, of, of the people of Israel coming to Ezekiel, tell us what God wants us to do. And God says to you, you tell those people, I told them to get rid of their idols a long time ago. And they're not. So I, I'm not giving them anything. And, and, and so sometimes if, if God has spoken clearly and we've said no, or we've not listened or disobeyed, why would we think God should just come back later and go, oh, it's okay that you didn't do what I asked you to do, but I'll give you here. And it's like, no, there's got to be a, okay, God, have you asked me to do something that I haven't done? And maybe maybe we start there. That's a, that's a decent place. Peter's a great example of this. He's a headstrong fisherman, proclaims Jesus in one breath and then rebukes him in the next. Um, and then you see this transformed Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. You see Peter's saying, humble yourselves, right? He's from his experience, humble yourselves. Um, he said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you, Peter's a great example. Here's the last one. Be willing to do the uncomfortable, I think, is if, if you approach God with a question, then be willing for, to do whatever the answer is. And, and that is sometimes... Someone has described it this way, that anytime I ask God a question, my, my answer first must be, yes, I will do it, before I even ask the question. Yes, I will do whatever you say. Okay, here's the question. And uh, I think that's a great posture to have. Be willing to do the uncomfortable, whether it's confront someone, or whether it's seek forgiveness, or, or bring up the gospel in a, in a conversation, no matter how awkward that makes you feel, or whatever the case may be, be willing to do things that God's called you to do. So those are my four things. Any thoughts or questions? We have a few minutes. I know I haven't answered any of your, all of your questions, but yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good, that's a good way of, that is a, that's a, that can be a sign in some sense, right? This, okay, I have this piece about moving. Across. 
picking up my family and moving across the country. That is crazy, but I feel this peace about it. Or I don't feel peace about it, therefore I'm not going to act on it. I'm going to wait, or I'm going to, right? That's good. Yes. That's great. Yeah, we, we, we talk about the, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God. And, and the Spirit does speak through His Word and through His people. And, and we really need to, to seek both, both of those and listen for God to give guidance and direction. But that's huge, to have the people of God in your life, to point you, to guide you. Like God has put you, God has put the people around you that He has around you for a reason. And so... Trust him in, in seeking those people. So that's good. I'm going to be done four minutes done early. And then one up Nancy. All right, but let me, let me pray, and then we'll be done. God, thank you for your patience with us when we come to you with um, urgency and needing our answers to be, our questions to be answered and needing them now. God, I think, uh, I think you are loving and patient uh, with us in those times. And I believe also you want us to grow out of that in, in, in a way as well. And so, God, help us to seek you, to grow in relationship with you, to, to, to seek after you and your word and, and to, to listen to you through your word and through your people as we, um, as we live this life. And I pray that uh, in, in all these things, God, that we would seek your glory and your kingdom and trust you for everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.